Let's go to James chapter 5 and verse 9. The specific command is just this, is do not grumble against one another. Now, when you realize that that is a command of Scripture, that we are commanded by holy God not to grumble against one another, do you automatically almost grumble about the command to grumble? (laughs) To not grumble? And the reason why is because we are so prone to grumble. I know that. Because I grumble. And for many of us, we've grumbled together. And Scripture calls us not to grumble. And the word that he uses here is an intense form of complaining. And it's specifically because it comes in the context of one another. It's that we're not to complain about someone else. I just want to get an idea of the intensity of this word. You see it in terms of the creation's desire to be remade. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemptions of our body. So Paul uses this word in a very vivid way to show an intense longing for something. You see it used in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2, For in this we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And so, two times, Paul uses it to show the intensity of our desire of what will be ours in the eschaton, in Christ. What will be ours with Christ. And so it's an intense thing. It's an inward thing. It's something that is very much a strong feeling. And so when James is using this, he's using it of something that is intensely taking place within the person against another person. So, very clear the command is we're not to grumble about one another. We're good on that, right? That's the command. But we also see a general command in Scripture as well. as well, And I want us to see this, and we will work through these two commands. One is in relation to us, one another, but then Paul writes of it generally. Now, he uses a different Greek word that is one of those uh, words that it, it sounds like the word it's supposed to say. So you say the word grumbling, and what is grumbling? What is that, an onomana? What do you call that? Onomatopoeia. That's the Greek word that Paul uses here. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Do all things without grumbling. That's pretty clear. So we're not to grumble against one another, and then we're just not supposed to grumble. So if we're looking for a time, when's it okay to grumble Scripture actually doesn't give us that. Let me ask you this. Is this realistic? Now, <clears throat> that's, that's absolutely true. In Christ it is. 
But notice what he says in verse 7 of James. He says, be patient. So rather than complain, what are we to do? Is have patient endurance. But that does mean something. Not only the command to not grumble, but the command not to grumble against one another, but to have patience, patient endurance in the context of a body of believers tells us that we are sometimes knuckleheads. What do you mean sometimes? We are a lot of the time knuckleheads. Thank you for the correction. And the, the thing is, is that that's the reality it, it, that we can be a pain in the neck at times. And so, again, I, I ask this question, does the Bible set forth an unrealistic expectation? Does the Bible command us things that are not, just not realistic? Or it, does the Bible ignore the reality of life or the reality of people? Well, I know you know the answer to that. But I think it's important we look at what the Bible shows us life is really like. And then we come back to this command. We have in the church personality issues that could result in grumbling. You think of Philippians 4.2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Synthache to agree in the Lord. Those poor two women have been talked about for 2,000 years in churches. And their names are forever written because they had disputes with one another. We have no idea what they were, but Paul corrects no theology, so very likely what it was was some sort of interpersonal conflict that was taking place. It wasn't a theological issue. So we have grumbling because we have sometimes problems with one another. But there's also like theological reasons that could irritate us, that could make us mad. You think of what Paul writes in Galatians, in chapter 1, verse 8, but even if I, or we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, Paul uses very strong language, though, to show us a reality, is that there is gospel or theological issues that are so important that the church is to say that this person is anathematized. That could cause grumbling. There's also non-gospel issues, but nonetheless theological issues. that They aren't gospel, so they're not issues we would divide over. You would divide over what Paul brings up in Galatians. But we wouldn't divide over this as over ceremonial law type of things of food. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And so there are some non-gospel issues that could cause quarreling between us, that could cause us to grumble. Scripture recognizes that. Scripture recognizes that there's also sin issues that take place within the church. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, where we're told this is God judges those outside, but purge the evil person from among you. Sometimes there's issues of sin that take place within a body of believers. What about things like jealousy that creep up? Does that sometimes creep up in the church? 
Think about Paul's situation as he writes to Philippi. He's probably under house arrest in Rome. So you can imagine Paul's in Acts chapter 28 when he writes these words to the church of Philippi. In verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And think about what, where Paul is, is Paul doesn't know the outcome of his trial. He, he says, uh, you know, I... I could die, or but I would rather be with you. I don't know what Christ has in store for me. And people were using that as an opportunity to preach Christ. He doesn't correct their theology here. It seems like they had the right message. But they were preaching the gospel in a way that would harm Paul and diminish his ministry. Look at Paul now. He's in prison. And so, even in this time, we're incredibly unfair to Paul, harmful to Paul. Look at how he responds. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He doesn't grumble against them. He says, this is what it is. And now, thankfully, Paul wrote this as he was guided by the Holy Spirit, so we have this instruction. But he doesn't, doesn't grumble about it. Now, this is, these are situations with people. We get that. We all live in that, but... Does the Bible recognize that life is difficult at times? And that sometimes it's okay to grumble because of how how difficult life is. Maybe the Bible doesn't recognize how difficult our life is. Well, read these words. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 24, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You think you had a bad day? (laughs) Go hang out with the Apostle Paul. But look what what he says. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant. He goes on then to say about his thorn in the flesh, and then he says this. He says, but he said to me, that is Christ said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul shares this not as a way to grumble about the hardships of life. He endured through pain and suffering with joy because of what it was doing in him. Paul wasn't a robot. Paul wasn't a fatalist. Paul was a man that was in tune with the sovereignty of Christ working in his life. And so the difficulties of life, he could still say that. You, you think of sickness. We face sickness. We see this of Epaphroditus in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 27. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. 
The Bible deals with that. You think of the stories that you read in the Old Testament. David got to his old age and he, he couldn't keep warm. Speaking about the reality of life that we face. That's what literally was happening to him, but it teaches us something. That in life you face difficulties, you face hardships, our bodies fall apart, we have problems with people, we get into fights, we get into arguments. The Bible also recognizes the fact that we live in a corrupt world and we face persecution. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, it says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. The body, the scriptures recognize the fact that we sometimes live under oppressive governments that do wicked things to us. You think of what Jesus' warnings were in John chapter 16. Where he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Meaning, they're they're religious circles. Because they denied their Messiah would even become so corrupt that they would kill people. So think about this, what the Bible acknowledges so far. The Bible acknowledges that we have problems with one another. The Bible acknowledges the fact that we have hardships and tragedies in life. The Bible acknowledges sickness. The Bible acknowledges our age. The Bible acknowledges a corrupt government. And then the Bible still says this, do all things without grumbling and do not grumble against one another. Really puts it in perspective when you think of it that way, right? It's because when the Bible gives us these commands, not only were the human authors the ones who experienced these things and then recorded their experiences of suffering, they're the same ones that God uses to give us that command of not doing anything with grumbling. Now, there's a reason why this is so important. I think the context of James, if we could go back to James for a second and just think about what the context of this is, I think the reason that this is given is because the church that James was writing to there in, in, in Jerusalem and those that were outside of Jerusalem, they were facing hardship. And what he's saying is that in hardship, it's so important that you guys stick together. And what could split you apart could actually be grumbling. And that's kind of where it starts to build factions. Now you see some of the difficulties they faced. There were wicked, wealthy oppressors. You see that beginning in verse 5, where he says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept backed by fraud, are crying out against you. 
And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So they're facing people that were in positions of power and had wealth that were oppressing the church. It was a difficult time. In fact, James deals with this idea of wealthy people many times. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, And in the, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. He goes on in chapter 2, and verse 3, warning them about paying attention to one who wears fine clothing. And say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you, you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Now again, uh, it's important to know James is not against wealth. He's against the abuse of it in positions of power that the people were in real life facing. They were being uh, paid, not paid for their services. They were being taken to court. There was violence against the people. So there's these very wealthy, powerful people that were over the top of them. And you'll notice James does not address them as brethren. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl. He doesn't say, hey, brothers, those of you with wealth, you need to tone it back a bit because you're becoming a little bit abusive. He says, you rich. He doesn't refer to them as brethren. And so those with power, those with wealth, were persecuting some of those without. Now, it's not hard to picture, is it? What was taking place? I just think about it. For over two years, what did we see? We saw businesses shut down. We were forced to wear face diapers. And then you see people in positions of power with great wealth not following their own guidelines. We get it. We know what tyrannical leaders looks like. We know what... That feels like maybe not to the point that they did, but our brothers up north do. And, and in many other countries, they, they have experienced that, what that oppression looks like. We understand that type of pressure to some degree. And so what is the encouragement that we're given in the midst of that? It's this, is look around. You all are in this together, and you have to stick together through it. Because if you don't stick through it together, you won't be able to endure what's coming. That's his whole entire point. Now, he doesn't just say, you know, suck it up, and, you know, rely on God and move on. But look what he says. He says, be patient, therefore. This is verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. This is after saying they have been endured hardship from this group of people with power. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. 
So let me ask you, how long are we supposed to be patient for? Do we just like get to be patient for a few years and we say, okay, patience up? No, it's until Christ returns. And then when Christ returns, we won't have to, we won't have to be patient. We'll be transformed. So he says it's we are to be patient until Christ returns. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. He says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he's telling us, this is coming soon. And this is where we see this command of how to be patient. Do not grumble against one another. So how we show patience is directly related into this inward thing that's taking place. And this is, again, inward. It's an inward disposition primarily. It could be a resentful attitude or bitterness towards others. And specifically, it's in the context of the brethren, meaning it's against those that we fellowship with, those that we are in a covenant community with one another. We have to be on guard about bitterness. The author of Hebrews tells us so, that we are not to allow any root of bitterness. He says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. Now, bitterness is something inwardly taking place. So you think of that idea of that grumbling. Maybe it's an expression of something under the breath, but it's, it's really something inside. It's that boiling up, and you'll notice that agricultural language is of, of a root. And it's that seed that is sprouting and is beginning to come up, We're not allowed to have that spring up. We can't allow that to grow because when it grows, it produces fruit, but it's deadly fruit. Bitterness is that that fruit that is a fruit that is is bitter, that we want to spit out because it poisons everything. And so we can't have that inward disposition And a couple of things we have to understand about this is the primary command in regards to our lives with one another, what is it? What is the primary command of the one another passages? Love one another. So you think about that idea of not grumbling or that inward disposition. Guess what Paul tells us about it? He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or, here's the word, resentful. That grumbling is not an act of love. It's actually the opposite of it. And we just have to, as, as people, 
live with a forgiving spirit in our lives with one another. In Mark chapter 11, verse 25, the Lord Jesus said, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In other words, every time we go to the Lord in prayer, that that grumbling type of spirit or that grumbling that may take place within us, it's, it's something directed, right? Grumbling is directed at something or someone. If it's directed at someone, it means it's got to be checked every time we go to the Lord in prayer. We need to be constantly checking it. Now, I think if we wrapped our minds around that every time we went to the Lord in prayer, it might actually cure our grumbling spirit (laughs) because we're constantly taking it to the Lord that by His grace we could get past it. But then we, we have to recognize grumbling as a sin because it's not always recognized as a sin, is it? It's just such a natural thing. But it's a, a sin that has always existed as a thing that could divide people. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now think about the context that this comes in. First of all, it's identifying the covenant community. You can't bear a grudge against the covenant community. Now you think about the covenant community, they're marked off as different. They're given all of these promises. And you think about this as they're given this in the wilderness. They're about ready to get the land that they will inherit. And God says, I'm going to give you this promised land. By the way, you've got to take it by killing people and going to war. You have to stick together. If there's grumbling against one another, if there's this bearing of grudges against one another, you're not working as a unit to receive the promises that I have given you. Now, that that could be incredibly important. What happens to soldiers that are going into battle with one another, but maybe they don't like one another and there's grumbling in the camp. It affects their unity to go into battle. And so it was an essential aspect of the Old Covenant people as they would inherit the land. Now this is primarily dealing with this inward aspect of it, but what do we know about the inward aspect of it is it rarely stays just inward. At some point, it begins to manifest itself outwardly. Right? It it, it just almost inevitably always does. You think about this in that outward manifestation of grumbling. James writes this in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, that outward manifestation of what was taking place inwardly actually says a lot to do with our 
gift we have been given in Christ. You know, salvation in Christ changes us. That doesn't mean that we become sinless, but it, but it does mean that now we have a new disposition towards sin. You look at this danger of this outward grumbling. He describes again the tongue in these familiar words that you know in, in chapter 3, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. I think if you said to James, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hit, hurt me, I think he would hit you upside the head. He would say, what are you talking about? The tongue can destroy entire forests. Of course words hurt. One of the ways this is manifested, James addresses, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. That's one of those negative one another commands that we'll look at more in depth at another time. But this is speaking of un true speech. You could think of gossip fitting under that. That starts off inwardly, but then moves its way out. Now when James gives this context, he gives it in the context and shows us why there's grumbling. But notice the aspect of judgment. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I think this is crucial for how we understand what's taking place in this command and how we examine our own hearts in grumbling. Because notice what he says in verse 7. He speaks of the coming of the Lord. And then he says in verse 9, tied to this command not to grumble, that the Lord when he comes is coming as a judge. You're to live in light of that fact, which means this is that our grumbling in and of itself is an unjust judgment upon someone else. And the warning is, if you're judging, guess what? Christ is returning and he is the judge. He is the judge. He will return as judge. I think it's important for us to recommend, recognize that when we imbibe that grumbling spirit and if it's taken outwards, what we are doing is we are making judgments and pronouncing them upon people. Now, are we to judge one another? Yeah, actually, the scripture calls us to judge. In fact, we already read that. 1 Corinthians 5.13. But this is speaking of something else. This is going beyond recognizing and judging sin. This is going on beyond what would be us calling out sin in another person. This is taking on a sinful nature in itself. And so, as you see this command, what was happening to James's audience? Likely, what was happening in the congregation is that because they were oppressed, 
by these, this group of wealthy, wicked rulers, they began to turn on one another. They couldn't fight back against the wealthy. And so, where do you take that? That whatever that is that you've got going on inside, where do you, where do you take it? Well, evidently, they were taking it out on one another. Whatever was would have been directed at those people that were their oppressors, it now is taken out on one another. So you just imagine the scenario, and we 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 we're all here right now, and times are good for the for the most part, and we're we're thankful we had a great meal, but you you take that away because of people that were wicked rulers over the top of us that would make us angry. Where do we direct that? Do we turn it on one another? And this is something true of difficult times. In difficult times, people can play the blame game, right? Where they blame others for, their, for whatever's going on. We can't go there. In suffering, you can't blame others for it. And today we live in a society today where personal responsibility has almost vanished. And in the name of justice, we've actually seen the removal of personal responsibility with the movement of social justice. Uh, That's a a sad reality. And so, in that type of environment that we exist in, we recognize that the way society seems to be going is down a path of destruction. And so, if there's oppressors, that could lead to problems of jealousy, if someone isn't suffering as much as you're suffering. Or maybe that could, uh, not only jealousy, but an envy, but just downright anger towards someone else because they didn't experience the suffering that you experienced. Rather than weep with one another and rejoice with one another, it becomes that now, in that type of environment, we get mad and grumble over them. Well, I had to deal with this. Why didn't they have to deal with it? That doesn't seem fair that this is happening to me. I think it's important that we recognize that now as a body of believers how important it is that we stick together. The unity that we are given in Christ. We didn't come up with the unity. Christ gives it to us. We're to strive to maintain it. And here's the reality is that we are to live in light of that day that Christ does return. We're to live as salt and light. We are to live a life of loving one another and showing that love. And there's this apologetic aspect of this command. If someone comes into the church that is not a Christian 
and they experience grumbling, then they are experiencing nothing different than what they experience on their telephone as they're scrolling through their Facebook page. They're experiencing nothing different than what they've experienced in school, at their job, uh, in the grocery store. They're experiencing just normal way of life. But we're called to be different. There's an apologetic aspect of it that, wow, these people are enduring suffering, but they handle it so much different than I've ever experienced it. And that's how we need to look as a church. He gives the example of the prophets in this. In verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and that you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Did Job experience suffering? A little bit. What about the prophets who spoke and were beaten for it, mocked for it, had to experience humiliating experiences, all because they spoke God's word. That's our example. And he says, take them as our example that experience suffering. And there's something in this about grumbling that I just want us to take note of. Is what I think grumbling comes down to, ultimately, is dissatisfaction with God's providence. God is sovereign. That means God rules. The outworking of what we experience in that rule is called His providence. That's His governance of all things that take place. We we are living in God's providence. Grumbling is tied to it. Paul says... In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now when he references this crooked and twisted generation, he's specifically referencing the wilderness wilderness, uh, the, the wilderness wanderings. Excuse me, got my words backwards. We see this phrase in the Song of Moses that says, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer children, his children, because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. He's looking back at them that were in the wilderness wanderings and says they were corrupt. What is one of the characteristics that we see as they were wandering in the wilderness. Let me give you a couple of ideas. In Numbers chapter 14, it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled. All the people of Israel did what? What are we commanded not to do? They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the whole congregation said to them, this is their grumbling, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? 
our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said let, to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. In their grumbling, they decide they want to abandon God who led them by a pillar of fire at day and a cloud or a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day who led them through the Red Sea who brought about uh, these plagues upon the Egyptian people. They witnessed all of this stuff. Yet they grumbled. You see in chapter 21 of Numbers in verse 4 and the people became impatient on the way. And it says this, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. What did the people begin to do? Grumble. As they're out there in the wilderness needing to support one another. Hey, wait, wait, you know what? God has been good to us. Moses has been a great leader. He hasn't stirred us wrong yet. No, instead what they do is they grumble against one another. And ultimately, it's because they were dissatisfied with the providence of God in their life. We always have to take things back to God is sovereignly ruling over all things. And just for a second, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, where Paul speaks of this, of our God, he says, The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So how do we think of our God's providence like that? We trust God is sovereign. God is providentially working out all things according to his plan. And when you think of it like that, it kind of takes the wind out of the grumbling cells, doesn't it? So, we see this apologetic aspect of it. We see this idea that it is dissatisfaction with God's sovereignty. We see that this is a command about all things. It's a command that we're not to grumble with one another. So let us be the church in difficult times. And being a church, we know in difficult times, being the church may actually bring more problems than if we were just silent. And so let us recognize that. And in that, we're not allowed to grumble. Not allowed to grumble against one another. We're not allowed to grumble. We're not allowed to be like the the children of Israel in the wilderness that grumbled against Moses and against the Lord. So, let us view it as a sin. And if a root of it begins to spring up, uh, spray some Roundup on it and, and pull it out because it's deadly to our unity. And while I think that James speaks of something that begins inwardly, we all know that it eventually moves itself outwardly. We have to be accountable to one another when there is grumbling that takes place. That, that we, don't, we don't become, you know, you don't want to be that person that sounds like you're grumbling. 
And we don't want to we don't want to go there, but we can in love and grace with one another gently correct that. And look, you have to be willing to bring that correction and then if you're willing to bring that correction, that means you have to be willing to what? To be corrected. That's right. And this is what the Lord calls us to. It's imperative for our unity. And it's so crucial to think about as you think about the world we live in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you for your word, how it never steers us wrong, but is always uh, perfect and sufficient for all things. This is a hard word as we recognize, and your word recognizes it is difficult. But by your grace, Father, we can be a people that do not grumble. And so we pray that this would be a desire of ours. We pray that by your grace, if it ever manifests itself, that we would mortify it. I pray that we would, as a church, with gentleness and kindness and love, be accountable to one another, as you would have us be. And we pray that we would be an example to this community, that by your grace we're set apart and different, and that you deserve all the praise for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.